this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Welcome to the TSRA Clinical Scenarios podcast series. The goal of this series is to simulate and work through real-life clinical scenarios that trainees may encounter in real-life practice. Today, we will be going through three patient scenarios. Each will be followed by feedback from our faculty mentor. My name is Sandeep Bardwaj, and I'm a second-year integrated CT surgery resident at Northwestern University. Today, we are joined by Dr. Andre Churla, who is an assistant professor of cardiac surgery at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. Uh, hi, Sandeep. Uh, so uh, at this point, uh, you have a 63-year-old uh, male uh, who presents to the emergency room with sudden onset of short uh, 8 out of 10 uh, pain in his chest and back, and you are called to evaluate the patients. Uh, patient. How would you like to proceed? So I would start with a focused history and physical. I would specifically be interested in characterizing the location and onset of his pain, uh, prior similar episodes of pain, and risk factors like smoking status, um, any family history of cardiovascular disease or connective tissue disease. Uh, I would also elicit prior medical or surgical history. And on physical exam, I'd be interested in the patient's vitals, um, neurologic status, and any signs of extremity perfusion. The patient knows that uh, his pain started suddenly and uh, while he was in the gym. He describes his pain as stabbing and it's in the center of his chest and back. He denies abdominal pain. He has never experienced anything like this before. He has a history of hypertension that is medically managed. He has no past surgical history and no family history of heart disease or connective tissue disease. On exam, the patient is alert and oriented times three. He is able to move all four extremities. His pulses are palpable throughout, but left arm blood pressure is uh, 110 over 70, and right arm blood pressure is 160 over 90. His heart rate is 120 beats per minute. What would you like to do next? So at this point, I'm most suspicious for an acute aortic dissection. So I would start by ordering a stat, CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis with IV contrast. Um, I would also get an EKG, troponin, uh, lactate, and basic labs like a CBC and CMP. Okay. So uh, the CT, chest, abdomen, and pelvis shows an acute aortic dissection with an intermal tear in the distal ascending aorta. Uh, there is dissection into the uh, left subclavian artery but other uh, head vessels are perfused uh, by true lumen. The dissection flap extends inferiorly uh, to the level of the diaphragm. The aortic root measures uh, 36 millimeters, mid ascending aorta is uh, 50 millimeters, and uh, proximal uh, arch is 26 millimeters in diameter. His uh, lactate is 2.3. All the other uh, labs are normal. Okay. Um, so at this point, I want to take the patient emergently to the operating room for a type A dissection repair. Um, I would start with an intraoperative TEE to determine um, which type of repair I'd be planning. Okay. Uh, is there anything else you, uh, you would want to do prior uh, to taking the patient to the operating room? Um, I would start the patient on IV beta blocker um, with the goal of keeping the heart rate less than 60 and systolics less than 120. Would you aim to uh, bring uh, systolic blood pressure uh, to 120 uh, on which arm, left or right? I would aim to do it on the the arm that was more hypertensive, so that would be the right arm. Okay. 
As you take patient to the operating room, uh, patient is intubated, anesthesia uh, has placed all appropriate lines and is performing TE right now. On TE, aortic valve appears to be competent uh, with a mild uh, aortic uh, regurgitation. Normal bioventricular function, no other abnormalities. A transophageal uh, echocardiogram uh, confirms uh, that uh, aortic root is 36 millimeters in diameter. Uh, uh, mid ascending aorta is 50 millimeters in diameter. Uh, proximal uh, arch is uh, 26 millimeters in diameter. Uh, what operation are you planning to perform? So with those measurements, I would plan, since the aortic valve is okay, I'd plan a resuspension of the aortic valve with an ascending aortic replacement with a open hemi-arch anastomosis um, using deep hypothermic circarrest um, and integrated cerebral perfusion. Okay. Uh, can you tell me uh, the steps of the operation? Yeah. So I, I would start with right axillary cannulation using a chimney graft. Then I would open and, and perform central venous cannulation and also place a retrograde coronary sinus cannula. Uh, once those cannulas are placed, I would go on bypass and cool to 18 degrees. While that's happening, I would dissect my head vessels. And once the heart rate starts to slow down, I would cross clamp and initiate retrograde cardioplegia first. Um, at that point, I would transect my aorta uh, five millimeters superior to the STJ, identify the coronary ostia, make sure there's no tears or dissections into the coronaries, and then deliver anti-grade cardioplegia directly through the ostia. Um, then I would begin the repair. So I would use 4-0 proline with pledges to suspend the commissures and then use two felt strips um, inside and outside first of the, of the STJ for the proximal ring. So I'd run a row of running and locking sutures with that. And by that time, assuming that I'd reached 18 degrees, I would go Trendelenburg, uh, pack the head with ice, and then snare down the innominate and common carotid arteries so I could go on circa rest. Um, I would then initiate anti-grade cere cerebral perfusion uh, with 10 cc's per kilogram of flow through the right axillary. Um, remove my cross clamp and examine the arch for tears. And then assuming that there are no tears there, um, I would make a sandwich with a distal cuff using two felt strips um, and then an the appropriately sized uh, Dacron graft with a side branch. Um, once I finish my distal anastomosis, I would then connect the side branch to, uh, I would wire it to my arterial line. That way I can de-air the graft and then cross clamp the the Dacron graft and terminate anterograde cerebral perfusion and restart um, systemic circulation. Uh, after several minutes of de-airing and restarting circulation, I would initiate rewarming, um, ensure I have hemostasis on the distal anastomosis, measure a length of graft um, that would be appropriate for my proximal anastomosis, so then transect the Dacron graft and do my proximal anastomosis using uh, 3-0 proline. Um, once that's complete, Again, I would check for hemostasis, insert a root vent, de-air the heart. Um, at that point, I would give warm blood hyperkalemic reperfusion and then remove the cross clamp and wean off bypass. Sure. Uh, uh, one thing you mentioned that you would uh, transect uh, aorta five millimeters about uh, center tubular junction. I would try to open aorta uh, as high as uh, possible, uh, uh, close to cross clamp, because sometimes coronary arteries can ride high and you can get into the coronary arteries inadvertently. So just be careful when you're transecting your aorta. So uh, now you are trying to come off uh, cardiopulmonary bypass and you see uh, that uh, central venous pressure um, uh, gets up to 20. 
uh, pulmonary pressure is low, uh, uh, let's say uh, 25 over 20, uh, right ventricle is dilated, uh, uh, what do you do? So there's, I'm worried about RV failure. Um, first, I would start by going on pump and just reperfusing longer and seeing if uh, I'm able to come off with a little bit more reperfusion. Okay. Uh, you're trying to come off uh, cardiopulmonary bypass after 10 minutes of re uh, additional reperfusion and uh, you get the same results. You're not able to come off cardiopulmonary bypass. Okay. So at this, at this point, I'm going through causes of why the RV may be failing. Um, I would have anesthesia, my anesthesia colleague start epi, um, and then I would also get an ultrasound probe to check flow in the, the coronaries. Okay. Uh, you see very good flow in the LAD territory uh, and circumflex territory. However, uh, there is no uh, color flow uh, in the uh, RCA uh, or PDA. What do you suspect? Okay, so now I'm most worried that either there's a blockage of my RCA or the dissection extended into my RCA and I didn't see that. Um, so at this point, I would have to fix this. I would go back on bypass, um, have, I, I would harvest a vein graft and do a coronary artery bypass from the, P, the aorta down to the PDA. Okay. Uh, okay, that's fine. Uh, so you, 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 you do uh, bypass graft uh, and you're able to come off uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. All right, so uh, you came off cardiopulmonary bypass uh, and um, uh, anesthesiologist doing uh, systemic assessment of the heart and valves and he uh, tells you that now there is a severe aortic regurgitation. What do you do? So in this setting, I, I just came off bypass severe AI. I would have to replace the valve. So I would, I would open, go back on, cross clamp, um, arrest the heart with retrograde open, uh, give anagraded cardioplegia, and then perform my aortic valve replacement. So start by excising my leaflets, um, placing annular 2.0 at the bond sutures, and then use a bioprosthetic valve, tie down the valve, and, and close. Okay, very well. So now you're able to come with cardiopulmonary bypass. There is no valvular abnormalities, but ventricular function is normal. You have minimal vasopressive uh, and inotropic support. Patient goes to the ICU and gets discharged uh, post-op day seven. Good job. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, now, in, in terms of uh, feedback, I think uh, it's very important to um, to have TE prior to uh, surgeries that uh, that will help you to determine uh, whether uh, the valve uh, is salvageable, uh, aortic valve, I mean, uh, whether uh, function of both ventricles is, uh, uh, is good. That's important for planning, of course. Um, uh, when would you consider to replace aortic root? What number would you use? I would use probably uh, 45. Sure. Um, all right. Um, and uh, and the good point that you, uh, after, um, after you have a significant aortic regurgitation and uh, intraoperative T after uh, coming of cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, you proceeded with uh, aortic uh, valve replacement because uh, uh, in uh, some, uh, uh, aortic surgeons might consider uh, doing repair, but uh, but the safest uh, thing to do is just to replace the valve. So we need to save uh, this patient's life. All right, very well. All right. Scenario number two. 
67-year-old uh, gentleman uh, has been uh, known to have heart murmur, uh, which was uh, best heard over the apex uh, uh, of the heart and radiating to the uh, left axilla. His uh, latest echocardiogram uh, was notable for ejection fraction of 53% uh, and severe mitral regurgitation. Patient uh, does, uh, does not endorse significant symptoms, uh, but notices that uh, his uh that his time uh, has been uh, worsening when running uh, uh, his usual 5Ks uh, on the weekends, and in comparison uh, to echo from two years ago, ejection flexion uh, dropped from 65 to 53%. Okay, so again, I would begin with a, a history and a physical um, focused. So then focusing on changes in his exercise capacity, um, I would also be interested in any other symptoms of heart failure, such as peripheral edema or orthopnea. Um, and then I would look at the patient's other surgical history, medical history. Uh, I would want to see the echo itself, trying to figure out the etiology of the MR, um, as well as some more function, uh, uh, information about the heart, like other valvular pathologies, LV dimensions, uh, things like that. Okay. Uh, patient also know, uh, notices uh, a worsening of his uh, 5K times, uh, as I mentioned. But also he has history of uh, hypertension, long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation, diabetes, a GERD, and no past surgical history. His uh, echo shows severe mitral regurgitation uh, due to uh, P2 prolapse and flail, due to uh, ruptured cords. Ejection uh, fraction, as mentioned before, 53%. Uh, regurgitation fraction, uh, 60%. Uh, uh, PISA, 11 millimeters in uh, diameter and uh, left ventricular and diastolic dimension, uh, 55 millimeters. Okay, so that tells me the patient has uh, severe symptomatic MR, which then makes us a class one indication for surgery. Uh, I would offer the patient an open mitral valve repair. Uh, and then since he has the long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation, I'd offer that with a biatrial maze and left atrial appendage ligation. Okay, uh, can you describe the steps of the operation? Sure. So. Uh, I would start with a median sternotomy, do ascending aortic and uh, bicable, bicable venous cannulation, uh, place a retrograde coronary sinus cannula. Um, at that point, I would cross clamp and arrest with intergrade cardioplegia. Uh, I would then snare down the IVC and retract it so that I can perform a left atriotomy. Um, and then I would start with my maze, so my, my left atrial cryoablation lesions, first starting with um, isolating my pulmonary veins, completing the box, um, and then a lesion into the MV annulus, the mitral valve annulus, and then a lesion into the left atrial appendage. Um, once I completed my left atrial maze, I would inspect the mitral valve under direct visualization, uh, injecting saline to confirm what the exact mechanism of the MR is. Um, I'd also look check for any elongated cords and, and measure the valve at this time, specifically the various, the anterior and, and posterior leaflet. Um, if the mechanism that I found then was truly P2 flail, I would perform a triangular resection um, and re of the P2 leaflet and reapproximate the, the cut edges um, in two layers using a 5-0 at the bond running stitch. Um, I would test the valve again by injecting saline, making sure there's no other uh, notable residual MR. Um, and at this point, if there wasn't, I would start to place my annular sutures. I'd, so I'd bring the annulus with the 2-0 uh, non-pledgeted at the bond sutures. Um, 
I would run those through a rigid complete ring that corresponds to the, that's the appropriate size corresponding to the dimension of the leaflets that I measured. Um, once that's tied down, I would test the valve again, make sure there's no residual regurgitation, and then close the left atrium. Um, at this point, you know, throughout all this, I would have been redosing cardioplegia every 15 minutes um, to ensure a, a diastolic arrest. Um, once this is done, I would remove the retractor, uh, expose my left atrial appendage, and place a clip at the base of that. Um, at that point, I'll be able to take off cross clamp. So I would do that and then begin my right atrial, or my right atrial maze. So I would snare down the SVC also, um, open the right atrium, do my SVC to IVC lesion, tricuspid annular lesion, and then a lesion towards the apex of the right atrial appendage. Um, at that point, I would close my right atrium, unsnare both my vena cava, um, and then wean off bypass while assessing function and, and close. Okay, uh, very well. So uh, now uh, you're trying to come off uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, but you cannot come off. Patient is becoming hypotensive, and your anesthesiologist tells you that uh, his anterior septum is uh, functioning well, but uh, circumflex territory is hypokinetic. Okay. So at this point, I'm worried, obviously, for perfusion of my circumflex. Uh, my biggest concern is that one of the annular stitches at the, the lateral commissure P1 region would have injured the circumflex. Um, I do know that also the left atrial appendage clip can sometimes impinge on the coronary, so I think that would be the easiest thing to address first. So I, I would go back on bypass and remove the left atrial clip and, and see if I'm able to come off at that point. Okay, uh, how do you remove the clip? Um, I believe you can use a wire cutter uh, to remove the left atrial appendage clip. Uh, just cut the hinge point on the clip and pull, pull it off from there. Okay, uh, let's say you remove the clip and in uh, one case you're able to come off. Uh, pump, good, uh, good job, no problem. And uh, let's presume you cut the, uh, you remove the clip and you're still not able to come off cardiopulmonary bypass. What would you do next? So in this scenario, again, I'm worried about um, compromise of my circumflex circulation by the lateral commissure. Um, so I would, I would just bypass the circumflex arteries. I would harvest a vein and graft from the aorta itself to the OM, um, being very careful to manipulate the heart as little as possible given, uh, you know, I just had to put a mitral annular ring in and I'd want to avoid any AV groove disruption. Okay, very well. Good job. So, um, Let's say uh, you try to come off cardiopulmonary uh, bypass and your PA pressures are significantly higher than they were preoperatively and uh, T shows severe uh, mitral regurgitation due to dehiscence of uh, your uh, res uh, triangular resection. So w what are you going to do? Um, so again, this scenario, there's, if there's dehiscence in my resection, uh, I would probably go on pump, go back on arrest, and then I wouldn't try to repair the valve again. I would just replace the valve. I think it's the safest thing to do. I agree point. this is the safest thing to do. Well, some people would argue that maybe try to repair, but uh, well, the safest uh, thing for the patient is to replace the valve. Okay, very well. So now uh, a last scenario. A uh, 52-year-old uh, female is referred to you by her cardiologist because of uh, three months of exertional uh, substernal chest pain. Uh, cardiologist did you a favor and performed a stress test, uh, which was uh, positive with uh, ST elevation um, and um, in the LAD territory. Uh, 
she also sent her a full of heart catheterization, which revealed uh, 60% stenosis of left main, 80% stenosis of uh, OSTLLED, and 90% stenosis of uh, left circumflex, as well as 80% stenosis of mid-RCA. How do you want to proceed? Um, again, I, I would meet the patient and begin with a focused history and physical, looking at the nature of the symptoms the patient's having, um, any risk factors, including a history of diabetes, uh, any kidney, kidney uh, in, see, chronic kidney disease, uh, any history of stroke or TIA-like symptoms, as well as chronic conditions and prior surgical history. Okay, very well. So uh, the patient endorses daily chest pain with exertion. She has no neurologic symptoms, and uh, she has uh, long-standing hypertension and no history of diabetes. Okay, so that said, I'd begin ordering kind of my routine workup tests before uh, the operation. So I'd start with a bilateral carotid duplex um, and echocardiography to assess all the valves and the global cardiac function, as well as vein mapping strategy uh, studies to um, assess conduit. Okay. Uh, carotid duplex shows a uh, high-grade stenosis of uh, left internal carotid artery. Um, and as you mentioned before, as we mentioned before, uh, there is no uh, neurologic symptoms. Would you address uh, carotid disease uh, before coronary uh, disease or after or during? I would address the coronary disease first in the situation. Uh, the patient has no symptoms, so even though there's a high-grade stenosis, the coronary disease is, is what's making the patient symptomatic. I would, however, refer the patient to a vascular surgeon for a carotid endarterectomy um, after the cabbage. <coughs> okay. Uh, regarding uh, the rest of your workup, the echo shows a uh, low normal EF of 50%. No valvular lesions were identified. Okay, at this point, I would offer the patient a coronary artery bypass graft uh, operation. So I would plan for left internal thoracic artery to the LED, um, REMA to the, the OM, and a vein graft to the PDA. How would you configure uh, your grafts? So for the vein graft, I would do a reversed vein graft from the aorta directly to the PDA. Um, the lima would be in situ to the LED. And then for the REMA, and I would be worried about it reaching all the way, so I would do uh, a Y graft from the REMA to the the OM. And then my, my LIMA and REMA, I would, I would skeletonize as well. Okay. Uh, please uh, describe the steps of the operation. Okay, so first I would take the patient to the OR. Um, as always, I would start with an intraoperative TEE to rule out any valve lesions, and then start with a median sternotomy. Uh, I would harvest the bilateral internal thoracic arteries in a skeletonized fashion, and then harvest the greater saphenous vein from the right lower extremity. Um, at this point, I would transect the rema proximally right at the confluence of the subclavian vein and create a Y graft with an end to side anastomosis from my rema to my lima. Um, after that's complete, I would ensure that there's good flow from both legs, the rema and, and lima of the Y graft. And then I would prep my vein, making sure that it's in a suitable size conduit uh, with good flow through it. Um, once that's done, I would heparinize, uh, do central cannulation, central aortic right atriovenous cannulation, um, place anterograde and retrograde cardioplegia catheters, go on bypass, I would empty the heart, and once with the empty heart, I would then be able to maneuver it to look for, inspect for uh, good targets. Once I found my targets, I would mark them and then cross-clamp and arrest the heart. Uh, I would start first with my PDA, 
doing my distal anastomosis first with the vein graft, uh, running that anastomosis with a 7-0 proline, um, ensuring hemostasis, and then completing my proximal vein anastomosis, uh, do it directly to the aorta. Uh, next, I would look at my OM. Um, I would do my Rima anastomosis to the OM, again, with a 7-0 proline running, and then a Lima anastomosis to my LAD. Um, after each anastomosis, I would, I would check to make sure that there's good flow through the anastomosis. At that point, I would, if there is good flow, we have good hemostasis, I would remove cross clamp and reperfuse the heart with um, warm blood hyperkalemic reperfusion, uh, wean off pump and close. Okay. Uh, you're coming off uh, pump and notice that your posterior septum is akinetic and patient is uh, hypotensive. Okay, so first I would uh, start by assessing my graft to the RCA territory, um, making sure that it's there's hemostasis, the graft isn't kinked, and the anastomosis itself is intact. Right, and uh, then there is no tension on the grafts either. Mm-hmm. All right, so you examine the grafts, and you sh- you see that uh, your venous graft to PDA is uh, uh, kind of twisted and make making 360 a spiral. Uh, okay, so in this situation, I would have to uh, obviously correct, correct that. So I would place a, a side clamp on the aorta, side bite clamp on the aorta, um, take down the proximal anastomosis of the that graft, uh, unkink, like untwirl it, and then re-anastomose it with that side biting clamp. Mm. All right, how, how are you going to apply uh, side, uh, side bite clamp? Uh, I would go down on flow on the pump, uh, make sure the pressure within the aorta is low, um, and then I would pinch the aorta and pull it through the clamp itself and then um, apply the clamp. Okay. Um, so now uh, you will take uh, the patient to the intensive care unit and after extubation, patients, uh, patient becomes hypotensive. What do you do? Uh, so my immediate concern is that I would start with a, a bedside echo. I'd be worried about uh, any tamponade or initially, as well as any wall motion abnormalities indicating compromise of one of the grafts. Uh, sure, you don't see any pericardial effusion. However, you see that uh, a ejection fraction, uh, left ventricular injection fraction, is down to 30% from 60 uh, postoperatively immediately. What do you do next? Okay, so in this situation, uh, I have compromised of the graft in a post-op setting, so I would, be, I would take the patient for an emergent catheterization to look at the grafts. Okay, you do uh, angiogram and uh, you... Um, uh, realize that uh, the uh, Rima limb of the uh, white graft is down. Okay, so if that's the situation, I would take the patient back to the operating room. Uh, since the, the Rima is down, I would just harvest the vein from the other leg, whatever side we didn't use, um, and then bypass that graft itself, leaving that in place. So I'd bypass directly from the, a- the aorta to the OM. Okay, uh, we're going to do anastomosis of this vein in relationship to the uh, Rima graft. I would do it distal to the Rima graft. Okay, are you going to take uh, Rima graft down or are you going to leave it in place? I, I would probably leave it in place. Okay, all right. Uh, it's very good that you did a carotid duplex. Uh, that way we uh, knew before the surgery that patient has uh, carotid stenosis. Um, also, uh, uh, you, you answered appropriately uh, timing of uh, uh, vascular intervention uh, since there is no symptoms, uh, uh, there is no neurologic symptoms, then uh, it can be uh, done after a patient recovers from uh, bypass surgery.
uh, and uh, also there is uh, uh, flow of the blood in the graft uh, using uh, flow uh, flow meters uh, based on duplex and uh, current European guidelines uh, suggest that a minimum graft flow should be uh, at least uh, 20 cc's per minute with uh, pulsatility index uh, less than five uh, but uh, of course uh, less than three is considered to be ideal um, it was noticed that uh, pulsatility index uh, more than uh, five is uh, associated with high graft failure and that's more and more is uh, uh, this flow meters are utilized intraoperatively all right very well Thank you so much, Dr. Churl. I'd like to thank you for your time in doing this podcast. I'm sure it's very helpful to myself and all of the all of our listeners. All right. Uh, anytime, Sandeep, you know that.